If you have your Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 12. Okay, this is a remarkable story. I'm going to preach the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read together verse 6 to verse 11. In a count of three. One, two, three. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hand. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came into the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Father God, we thank you for your words. And I pray that you translate these words. And I pray that you make it come alive to us, Lord. Remind us once again, Lord, that we serve a God who is alive today. Not only alive, but we serve a God who hears our prayer, who hears our plea. So that no matter what kind of circumstance we're in right now, we always have hope. Because your hand is never too short to help us, God. And your ears are always open to our requests. So today, Lord, we want to hear your word. I pray that you use my words to be able to communicate your unlimited, your extraordinary, your magnificent word. And I pray that your will become alive in our heart and transform our life, Lord. And we ask this in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. So tonight I titled my sermon, Prison Break. Okay, if you guys grew up in my generation, you guys know what uh, Prison Break is. Now, there was a lady um, who lived out in a remote area who did not have electricity, and she wanted it. So she called an electricity company, and they made arrangements so that she could have electricity in her house. But the company noticed that after electricity, have, you know, she had it for a couple of months, only one unit of electricity was used. Okay, that's weird, because she wanted electricity, she got electricity, and yet from the data that they received, hardly any of it was used. Okay? So that, that's why they then went, they went out and checked to make sure there was no problem. And they said to her, lady, are you using your electricity? And she said, yes. And the company said, well, what are you using it for? And she said, well, when it gets dark, I turn it out long enough for me to light my kerosene lamp. Now, you guys understand what happened in the story? So apparently, she didn't understand the power that she had. Either she didn't understand, or she's Chinese, like most of us, right? She wants to save money. But she has all the power she could to bright up her house all night long, but all she does is what? Use the electricity for kerosene lamp. And I think that's the picture of many Christians today who saddle for kerosene lamp while God has given us the power to lit up the whole house. So when we look at the book of Acts for the last couple of weeks, months actually, we see that the, head, the, great, the hands of God is working powerfully as people play part in the gospel movement. And that's what I want for our church. 
Okay, my dream is that for all of us to work, um, it's a, to, do, to do life in such a way that we saw the hands of God working in our life. So I don't want this to happen. See, I don't want us just to come to church, you know, listen to a sermon, say hi to our neighbors, smile, go home, you know, and be encouraged by the sermon, and then live life as if the gospel is not true. Because what the Bible t- seems to tell us is this, that we have heaven resources at our disposal. Unlimited resources of heaven is our, at our disposal. God has deposited himself for us. But the thing is, a lot of times is this, we only settle for kerosene lamp when we have the electricity at our disposal. But yet, the trick is this. For us to experience God's power and presence, the key is this. We have to pray. And that's why tonight I want to talk about prayer. Now, when I talk about prayer, let me make a confession. Prayer is difficult. It's not difficult to talk about. I mean, all of us, if we grew up in church, we know, right, we got to pray. That's like the basic thing that you, your parents taught you when you, you, know, you were in Sunday school. You got to pray. They teach you to pray to God. Okay, so you, all of us know that we got to pray. Yet at the same time, pray extremely hard because even though we know it's simple, I think if we can be honest, not many of us actually pray consistently. Okay? D.A. Carson says this, if you want to embarrass most Christians, ask them how's their personal prayer life. Let me put my hands up. I am inconsistent in my prayer life. Like, you know, give me Bible, okay, and I can spend hours studying the Bible, you know, studying the Greek, you know, all this stuff. Awesome, I can do that. But if you tell me to pray, <laughs> I can only last for a few minutes, okay? So I am inconsistent in my prayer, okay? Because here's the question, right? Why do we not pray even though we know we ought to pray? Can, can I just ask you guys, can I be honest, right? We're in the church. How many of you guys struggle to pray? Can I see your hand? No, most of us. But I'm pretty sure all of us know we, not, we ought to pray, right? Why? Why are we struggling to pray then? Okay, there's many answers. There are many questions. Yeah, there are many answers. However, I just want to zoom in on one. Okay, I just want to zoom in on one. I don't want to go too broad because there's many reasons why don't, we don't pray. But ultimately, I think this is the most basic fundamental reason why, don't we, why we don't pray. Is this. We struggle to pray because we do not think prayer works. As simple as that, okay? I mean, you, you know it, like you prayed, like you prayed before. And sometimes when you pray, it works. And when God answers, you're like, awesome, right? You pray for girlfriend and the next, very next day, someone sends you a love letter, like, awesome. But can we be honest? There's also time that when we pray and nothing happens. And then there are times that you do not pray on the thing that you should pray for, and things still happen anyway. And then you got, maybe prayer doesn't really work, right? It's just happened by chance. Okay, we don't want to say it with our words, but that's what we think in our heart. We're not sure if prayer actually works, okay? And the passage for today will address us on that question. What is the purpose of prayer and whether prayer actually works? Now, let me give you the context of this passage. So the last couple of weeks, we see the gospel spread from Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. So last week, we saw how the church of Antioch was started, right? So this is the beginning of the worldwide movement starting from the church of Antioch. That's Acts 11. But then the very next chapter, Acts 12, which is our chapter for today, what we found is crisis happening in Jerusalem. Not only is a minor crisis, we found that this is a major, major crisis. It tells us something about gospel movement. 
the gospel movement does not come without significant cost. There is always opposition to the gospel movement. Here's my promise to you. If you decided to play part in the gospel movement, you will experience trouble. 100% money back guarantee. However, it is precisely in times of troubles that you and I will witness the true power of God. Okay? So for Christian, troubles are not something to be afraid of. Troubles are opportunities to witness God's hand upon our life. Because God is the number one specialist in solving impossible circumstances. Okay, that's the passage of our, our passage for today. We'll see impossible circumstances and we see how God's hand works in all of, all of that. Through one thing, through prayer. And it is written, I believe, Acts 12 is given to encourage all of us to know when we play part in gospel movement, we will face opposition. Yet at the same time, nothing can stop the gospel movement. Nothing. Okay, I have, I have three points for my sermon. The crisis, the rescue, and the failure. And I'll give you three important lessons from the passage. Let's look at the first one, the crisis, first one to five. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jew, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out of, to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay? Now, let me give you the background context of the story first. Okay? Here's what happened. There are actually three different Herod in the Bible. Okay? You might think it's just one because all of them are called Herod, but actually it's three different Herod. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, and the third one is Herod Agrippa I. And the Herod that we encounter in the book of Acts is Herod Agrippa I. Now, let me tell you a bit about his life. In the early part of his life, he does not have the favor of many political leaders. But he's a good friend of Emperor Caligula and Claudius. So when Caligula came into power, become emperor, Agrippa, Herod Agrippa was made ruler of Judea and Samaria. And this continued in the reign of Claudius. So here's what happened. So Herod Agrippa, in the beginning, does not have the favor of Jewish leader, even though he's the leader of um, Judea and Samaria. So when he became a ruler, what he wants to do is he wants to please the Jews. He wants their acceptance. And he figures the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, they really hate Christianity. You know, so how does he try to win their favor? Simple, killing the Christian. Okay, smart move. And then, but here's the thing though, he's really smart. If Saul, the way Saul persecuted Christian is Saul captured the lay Christian, but not Herod. You know what Herod does? He killed the top. He killed the top dogs. Because he understand, in order for you to stop a movement, you got to kill the leader of the movement. Smart, right? Very smart. So that's what happened. First, he killed James. Now, this James is not James who wrote the Bible. This James is actually James, the brother of John. And this is one of Jesus' three closest companions. If you do not know, Jesus has three closest companions. Out of the 12, he has three. They are Peter, John, and James. So now, just like that, one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 apostles, just in two verses, we find he's killed. So we don't know exactly what happened. Herod captured him. Herod killed him. Bam! 
And when Herod does that, you know what happened? The Jews love him. The Jews are like, oh my gosh, you're like the best ruler ever. And because of that, he's like, oh, this is actually work. And you know what he does next? He captured the top dog of Christianity. Who is he? Peter. Because you can't go higher than Peter. Peter is the man. Peter is the leader of the gospel movement. So he captured Peter. But here's the thing, though. He wanted to kill Peter, but apparently he captured Peter during the days of Passover. And it is illegal for the Jewish people to have trial and execution during Passover. Okay? So he stopped. This is what he does. So he put Herod in a prison, maximum security prison. And not only that, he, put a, a, he sent four squads of soldiers of four people each to guard Peter. Which means this, there are always four soldiers guarding Peter. And these four soldiers are rotated every three hours. So Herod understands okay, the importance of killing Peter. This is it. And he understands. He does not take it lightly. He put Peter in a prison with maximum security with four soldiers guarding him at all times. There is absolutely no possibility for Peter to escape. It is a mission impossible. Or is it? And then something happened in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So the church decided, you know what? We're going to pray for Peter. Now, okay, this is strange. Think about it. Think about it like a boxing match, okay? So this is what happened in the boxing match. So the announcer come and introduced the fighter to the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the fight that will decide the fate of Christianity. On my left, we have the challenger, Herod Agrippa I, with a maximum security prison cell, four squadrons of soldiers, the Roman authority, and the Jewish leader. On top of that, he just killed James, the brother of John. And on my right, we have church with her earnest prayer. Who do you think will win the fight? Can we agree this is not a fair fight? This is like putting me in a fight against Mike Tyson. That's not fair. But let me tell you why it's not fair. It might not be the, thing, the reason why you think it's not fair. So I'm sure in life, when you, when you decided to play part in the gospel movement, here's how I know what happened. Trouble will come along your way. Okay, for example, some of you, maybe suddenly you're diagnosed with terminal diseases. Suddenly, your children was fine, suddenly walk away from Christian faith. Or maybe something happened, you know, and you are put in a position where you feel like it's impossible. The odds are staked against me. There's nothing that I can do. It's not fair. Life sucks. And then we have COVID-19 as well. I mean, what can we do, right? I lost my job. I lost my business. And I'm supposed to be playing part in the gospel movement. This is not fair. The art is stakes against me. The fight is unfair. And it is unfair. But let me tell you why it is unfair. Because even though Herod has the might of Rome on his side, the God of the universe is on the side of prayer. And that is why it's not fair. We might face a huge mountain in front of us, but prayer gives us access to the one who can move a mountain. And we know, if you watch Mission Impossible, the movie, we know, no prisons is unbreakable. And the church understand, okay, and I, I think the, mini, the movie get it from the Bible as well. The church understand that the best way that they can get Peter out of prison 
is to bring God into the prison. And that's exactly what happened. So they prayed. They began to pray. And when the church prayed to God, God sends his agent on a mission called prison break. And look at what happened. The rescue. Verse 6 to verse 11. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hand. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandal. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came into the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Okay, this is remarkable. Luke does not want you to miss it, okay? This, he make it really clear. The rescue happened on when? On that very night. What night? On the very night before Peter's public trial and execution. With another word, <laughs> the rescue happened at the last possible moment. And if you've been walking with God for a while, then you know... <laughs> that that's just the way God loves to do things. God often does His best work at the last possible moment. God often seems late, but it's never too late. Anyone else find this annoying? I do. Okay, I really do. I, I, I wish, my personality, I'm a type A personality. Right? I, got, I, have, I have to have plan for everything. Okay, that's me. But God does not work that way. God almost never gives us a blueprint of what He wants to do with our life. Well, He simply said this, Yes, I want you to do A. That's great, God. You want me to do A, but how am I going to accomplish A? Give me the blueprint. Give me the steps, you know, break it down for me. He doesn't. A lot of guys just say, I want you to do A, and then He remains silent, and we don't like it. And we think, I think at least, you know, God, if you just tell me the plan ahead of time, I can actually make best use of it, right? I can actually come up with a better plan, a better strategy, and just make it happen even better, more effectively. But that is exactly why God does not tell us in advance. Because if God revealed to us what happened in advance, here's what happened. You and I will trust the plan and not God. That's exactly what happened. And that is why God let us wait to the last minute so that we may learn to trust Him in advance. And then the situation is extremely hopeless. So now imagine this. So Peter put in a prison with maximum security, but he's also chained to two different soldiers now. Okay, not just one. So his hands are chained to different soldiers. So in case he decided to be Jason Bourne and took one soldier, there's another one. Okay, so he's, he's chained to two soldiers, and then two other soldiers are guarding the door, and they rotate it every three hours so they don't be sleepy. So with another look, take the time to explain to us what happened in the prison to show us the wonder of what will happen next. Because if you understand what's happening right now, then what happened next is just miraculous. But before we go there, something very interesting happened. 
what would you do if you're Peter and you knew the very next day you'd be put on trial and executed? Let me tell you what I will do. I will panic. Okay, I won't be able to sleep. I will be anxious. And I probably will complain to God. You know, God, this is not fair. After everything I did for you, is this how you're going to treat me? Huh? You're going to kill me just like that? Are you serious? But not Peter. You know what Peter does? He sleeps. Okay? And not only sleep. Okay, this is, okay, imagine, use your imagination a little bit here. Peter is sleeping very well. Because when the angel shows up, when the angel comes, and with all the brightness that finally brightened the cell, you know what happened? Peter's still sleeping. So the angel probably said, Pete, wake up. We gotta go. Pete, wake up. And Peter remains sleeping. He was snoring probably. And you know what the Bible said? The angel strikes Peter. So kapow, Peter, get up. And then Peter woke up, and then immediately the chains fell off his head. Just like that. But here's the point that I don't want you to miss. Peter is able to sleep amidst crisis. You know why? Because Peter trusts in the Lord. He knows his God, and he's not afraid of that. Okay, I love one preacher put it this way. Peter's body is guarded by soldiers, but his heart is guarded by God. His heart is guarded by God. So then the angel command Peter, Peter, put on some clothes. I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, you don't want to break out of prison naked. Otherwise, you might get caught again the moment you break out of the prison. So the angel commands Peter, put on some clothes and follow him. So then they walk past the prison door and the soldiers guarding the door. And the soldiers do not even realize that they're walking past them. And Peter thinks to himself, ah, this must be a vision. So Peter is awake, but he's not fully awake. Anyone ever experienced that? This is like me in the morning before my coffee. Okay, there's one time I went to buy my coffee uh, with my shirt backwards. And I did not even realize it until a few hours later. Okay? That's what happened with before coffee. Right? Anyone know what I'm talking about, right? So that's what happened. So Peter is awake, but he's not awake. So then he follows the angel, and then he walks out of the prison. And when they get to the iron gate that leads to the city, suddenly the gate's open by itself. Now, if you watch a movie, that means there's another angel that hacks the system, right? That opens the gates for you. So the gate is open, and they're finally out. And when they finally get to one street, suddenly, poof, the angel disappear. And when the angel disappear, Peter finally realized, oh my gosh, I'm out of the prison. He's awake. It tells us something about God. It does not matter how difficult our situation is. No matter how impossible it seems, God can deliver us anytime, anywhere, any place. If we think our situation is beyond saving, we have bad theology. Nothing is impossible for God. But look at the third one, my third point, the failure. Some of you are like, that's really quick. Don't worry, my three lessons are long. The failure. Verse 12 to verse 17. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. 
But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell this thing to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, this is funny. Okay, you got to know, I'm pretty sure when Luke write this, he meant it to be funny. Because it is. Okay, just think about it with me. Imagine the scene with me. So Peter's out of the prison, and then he starts to make his way towards Mary's house. This is probably one of the home bases of the church in Jerusalem, okay? And when Peter is outside of the house, he knocks, right? Knock, knock, knock. And the people were praying inside the house. Lord, can you please save Peter? Lord, we believe that nothing is impossible for you. Can you please, please, please save Peter? Golly, who is interrupting our prayer time? I mean, we started our prayer time five hours ago. This person is five hours late. I mean, don't they realize that Peter is about to die? Peter's about to be killed in the morning. God, Rhoda, why don't you open the door? Whoever he is, he does not have manner. Okay, so Rhoda walks out. Rhoda steps out and hears the knock. Knock, knock, knock. Who is that? It's Peter. Peter who? Rhoda, this is not a time for knock, knock joke. This is Simon, Peter. And when Rhoda heard that, he's extremely surprised. She's filled with joy. And you know what she does? She forgot to open the door. So she ran back inside and said, guys, 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 you will not believe who is at the front gate. And they just like, Kuroda, don't you see we're praying? We are praying for Peter. He's about to be killed in a few hours. Every second is precious. Don't disturb our prayer. But, 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 but Peter is outside. Rhoda, you're out of your mind. Peter is in prison. Okay, that's why we gather here to pray. If Peter is outside, why are we praying here? And Rhoda like, no, 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 no. I hear his voice. It's Peter's voice outside. And you know what they say? It is his ghost. It must be his angel. Oh, you know what? He must have been killed and the angel comes to bid us goodbye. Okay, that's the idea because they do not believe. So then Peter keep knocking. No, 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 no. They're like, seriously, that angel is persistent one. Okay, so they finally walk out to the front door and they open the door. And to their surprise, who stands in front of the door? The answer to their prayer. So all this time they were praying for Peter to be rescued from prison. And when the Lord answered their prayer, they do not believe. They're very slow to believe that God is able to deliver Peter out of the prison. Does it sound like you and me? I mean, there are many times I think we pray to God, but we don't really believe that God actually wants to answer our prayer. And yet, many times, God is gracious in answering our prayer, despite of our unbelief. And Peter tells the story, you know, guys, guys, the angels saved me, the angels brought me here, and then he went. He disappeared, we do not know where he hides. And that's the end of the story, okay? Let me give you three important lessons that we can learn from this story. First, everything... All of them have to do with prayer. First, the sovereignty of God. See, when we play part in the gospel movement, you should not be surprised at opposition. You should be surprised if there is no opposition. But what we must know is this, that God is absolutely sovereign over our life. One of the most common mistakes that Christians make in regard to sovereignty of God is this. 
we believe that God is sovereign over the good thing in our life, but we do not believe that God is sovereign over the bad thing in our life. I mean, let me tell you, there's so many pastors that believe that. So they said, you know what? If you're blessed, that's God. COVID-19, that's not God. But let me tell you what is wrong. It is extremely wrong. Because if God is not in control over every single thing, it means that God is not sovereign at all. I mean, if even there's a single molecule in this universe that God is not in control of, it means He's not sovereign. So let me put it this way. God is either sovereign overall or He's not sovereign at all. He's either in control over both the good and the bad or He's not in control at all. Let me tell you why this is unsettling. Okay, let me why this is not comforting to some of us. Okay, I know what you, what's in your mind right now, right? Because it means if God is sovereign overall, it means God is not surprised at all at the death of James. Not at all. But the question that you need to ask is, well, James, you know, one of Jesus' favorite disciples, James, one of the 12 apostles, and in a matter of two verses, we don't know what happened. He died. Boom, just like that. He's killed. So the question was this, why is James killed? I mean, he has a prospect, he has future, he's one of the apostles. Why did God allow him to die so early in his life? And then what makes things worse is this, and then there's another cap- apostle get captured by the name of Peter, and then the church pray for Peter, and you know what God does? God rescue Peter. So then the question would be, why did God save James? I mean, why did God save Peter? And why did God not save James? You with me on that? But then the Bible tells us this, that in both the rescue of Peter and the death of James, God is absolutely in control. So God is not surprised when James died. It is part of his sovereign and good purposes for James to die. Now, can you, can you feel why this is unsettling? Because this is what I know about you and me. You want to be Peter. I want to be Peter. I want to pray to God and my prayer being answered. I want to experience supernatural rescue, right? Any one of us want to be James? Uh-uh. I don't want to be James. But if God is sovereign, it means this. He has the freedom and the right to choose who he wants to rescue and who he's going to leave to die. And that's unsettling. But for sovereignty of God, for God to be sovereign, it means for some of you, you might have a smooth road ahead of you. But for some of you, you might have a really, really rough road ahead of you as you follow Jesus. And we don't get to choose. God exercises sovereignty both in the death of James and the rescue of Peter. But this is what we also know. If God is sovereign, it means this. God does not make mistake. There's no error in his unfolding purposes for us. There's not even a single millisecond in our life that happened without God's permission. But God's way, not our way. God's thought, not our thought. But his ways are wise and good. And there is nothing but goodness in God, even when life hurts. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. And he does not owe you and me explanation. He's always working for his glory and our good. So for the Peters, God show off his power 
by delivering us out of impossible situation. But for the James, God shows his value by letting the world know that he's more beautiful than life. In all Peter and James, God is sovereign and he always good in what he does. Okay, that's the first lesson. Okay, but we do not stop there. Okay, if we stop there, then we don't understand the, the point of prayer. The second lesson is this, the power of prayer. Because here's what I know, okay? I know, I know what comes into your head right now, okay? Here's the question that all of us ask when we talk about the sovereignty of God. If God is sovereign, if God is in absolute control, if what, if God, what, if what God has decided will happen anyway, why pray? Does prayer change anything? Anyone ever ask that question? Okay, because we have to ask this question because if God is sovereign as we just see, then why pray? Can I put it in the context of gospel movement? If God is going to save Bob anyway, then why pray and share the gospel with Bob? Do you feel that tension? Because you ought to. Let me give you the answer. Let me rephrase the question. If God is not sovereign, why pray? Here's what I know. If God is not sovereign of every little things in the universe, there's no guarantee that God is in control of tomorrow. There's no guarantee that God can, God can keep His promise. There's no guarantee that my life and your life is in His hand for tomorrow. If God is not sovereign. Because for God to be sovereign, He has to be in control over every single thing that happens. And that's the reason we pray. Okay, let me give you an example. Okay, the easiest example is this. Let's say that I promise to buy you a brand new Ferrari on your birthday in the year 2022. Okay? How many of you like that? For me to buy you a brand new Ferrari? Okay, not many of you raise your hand. Wow! You guys have little faith in me. Okay? But you should. Because here's the thing though. In order for me to be able to keep my promise to you that I will buy you a brand new Ferrari on your birthday in the year 2022, two things must happen. First, I got to have the money. And because I'm a pastor, okay, definitely fail already, right? I don't have the money. But let's say I do have the money. Let's say I do have the money to buy you a brand new Ferrari in the year 2022. The second thing that must happen is this. You and I must remain alive on your birthday in the year 2022. If any of us die, the promise is born. Here's the thing though. How do I know that I'm going to be alive in 2022? I don't. All it takes is a single virus called coronavirus to make that promise empty. You know that. We experience that today. See, all it takes is just a single molecule, a single virus to kill us, and it makes all the promises mean nothing. So if God is not in absolute control over coronavirus, COVID-19, then how can we trust Him for tomorrow? But if God is sovereign, it's the opposite. The absolute sovereignty of God is the hope and foundation of our prayer. Because God is sovereign, our prayer is not in vain. Because God is sovereign, our prayer is not in vain. But that's not the only reason. Prayer acknowledges two things, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. 
because God in his infinite wisdom has ordained that he will accomplish his will on the world through prayer. God's will will be done whether we pray or not, but God's will will not be done without prayer because he has chosen prayer to be the mean by which his will be done on earth. Okay, some of you, that's too many will. Okay, let me repeat that. God's will will be done whether we pray or not. But God's will will not be done without prayer because he has chosen prayer to be the mean by which his will will be done on earth. Now, how these two facts are true at once and how they work together is a mystery. But it's true nevertheless. Here's what James said, James 4 verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, why? Because you do not ask. So with another word, so now putting it back together in the story of Peter, with another word, God has determined from the beginning of the universe that God will save Peter that day. God will rescue Peter out of the prison. But God also has determined that the way that he will rescue Peter is to the church praying for Peter. And when the church pray for Peter, then the will of God for Peter is accomplished. Are you with me on that? So with another, so then that, that means this. If the church decided not to pray for Peter, what will happen? So let me put it in our daily context. Let's say God wants to give you five things. Because five is the number of grace. God wants to give you five things. And then he had determined that he will give you two out of five whether you pray or not. And then you decided, because God, because you are sovereign, because you know what's going to happen tomorrow, I'm not going to pray. How many will you get? Okay, that's not a tricky question. How many will you get? Two. Because God had determined from the beginning that you only get the other three when you pray to God. And this is the, the, the tension that we got to keep. So yes, God is sovereign over everything. And yet God has decided from the beginning that the way that he will accomplish many things in your life, the way he's going to give you many of the good gifts that he has in mind for you is when you pray to God and ask him. Okay, the simplest way I know how to put it is this. Prayer is not about changing what God has planned, but bringing about what God has planned. So you're not changing God's mind. No, no. Prayer is a way for you to bring about what God has planned. So do not underestimate the power of prayer. Prayer is how God exercises His power and accomplishes will in our life and the world. You with me so far? And here's the third lesson. The third lesson that we can see is, first, we've got to understand the sovereignty of God. The second is we've got to understand the power of prayer and the third that we've got to understand is this expectant heart. Because if you can be honest, if I can be honest, a lot of time when we pray, we pray with unbelieving heart. I mean, we pray, but we do not expect God to answer our prayer. Am I the only one who ever prayed like that? I mean, I prayed. I mean, I prayed, but I do not really expect God to answer our prayer. And then, <laughs> you know, the thing that Christians do, we try to spiritualize it, okay? We say things like this. Well... Sometimes God answers by saying no. Oh, what about this one? This one was a very popular one. Prayer does not change our situation. It changes us. Those statements are beautiful and true. 
But many times, I use this statement, I use those kind of spiritual statements to simply to hide my unbelief. And that's not right. Because God wants us to come to Him, to ask Him with expectant heart. Okay, we lost a lot of time. Here's what happened. Because we're too smart, because we are too sophisticated, and we look at the sovereignty of God, and we say, like, okay, then I mean, you know what? I'm not really going to, you know, really pray. I'm just going to say it, but I'm not going to expect anything to happen. Well, I've tried before in the past, so why should I try again? And because of that, we do not pray with expectant heart. And yet sometimes God is so gracious to us, He still gives us anyway. He still answers us. But that's not the norm. Because what God calls us to do is, is He wants us to pray like little children. You know how little children pray? You know how little children talk to their parents? They just ask. I mean, they don't even care if the parents is rich enough. They, little children think that the, their parents can buy them the whole world. They have the audacity to ask. And that's what Jesus requires of us. See, Paul Miller, in his beautiful book, Praying Life, says this. When we pray, we got to hold two truths together in our hand. Okay? Two truths. The first is this. Not my will, but your will be done on it. So that means when we have this, it keeps us humble. It keeps us understanding that God is in control and I'm not. So we surrender to God. See, the reformed people, they excel at this. But the second truth is this, nothing is impossible with God. It keeps us praying. It keeps us on the posture of receiving. And the charismatic circle excel at this. And here's the two. We cannot choose one over the other. We need both. Because if we only have the first one, we will pray without expecting anything. Praying is simply a ritual. But we, if only have the second one, we will see God as a divine vending machine. Praying is simply a transaction. So in its own, both are wrong. But when we hold this truth together, God is sovereign. But listen, He's also a Father. God is our sovereign Father. And that's what Jesus said about prayer. Luke 11, verse 9 to 13. This is what Jesus said. And I tell you, as and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive, and the one who seeks, find. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to, good give, know how to give good gift to your children, how much more will the heavenly father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Now listen. What Jesus is saying is radical here. Because the word ask, seek, and knock is written in the tense, Greek tense, is continuous action. So what Jesus is saying to you and me is when you pray to God, when you make requests, you got to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Not only ask one and then give up. No, no, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. So that means when you pray that way, you expect an answer. I mean, you don't pray asking, seeking, and knocking all the time if you do not expect an answer. So you consistently bring your request to God with expecting that He will answer. And here's Jesus' answer. 
There's no earthly father who will give scorpion and serpent to their children who ask for fish and an egg. None. And then Jesus called the early fathers evil. Okay, the point is not that all early fathers are evil. No, no. They have, these fathers are good. They provide for their children. But then Jesus made this, this comparison. In, in, in comparing, if you compare the goodness of the early father with the goodness of our heavenly father, the goodness of our early father looks like evil. So that's why then Jesus concludes by saying this. If the evil father in this world know how to good, give good gift to their children, how much more is our heavenly Father know how to good give to give good gift to their children? I love the way Timothy Keller put it. God will either give us what we ask, or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything He knew. What Tim is saying is this: God will not fail to give what is good for you. But the key, you gotta ask. You gotta ask. And you must ask with expecting heart, expectant heart. But here's the clincher, and I close with this. But how do we know that God will answer our prayer when we ask Him? We know that God will answer our prayer because God did not answer Jesus when He called out from the cross. See, at the cross, remember that. You know the story. At the cross, Jesus cried out, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what God does? Silent. The heaven remained silent. There was no answer. So now we have the perfect beloved son of God who deserves all of his prayer answer, who does nothing wrong, and then he prayed to God and God did not answer. Why? So that you and I, when we put our faith in Christ, that we may receive the answers of God. Because at the cross, what happened is Jesus took what you and I deserve. That is unanswered prayer. None of us deserve God to answer our prayer. So that when we put our faith in Jesus, the merit of Jesus becomes ours. So that when we ask God, we have the confidence that the heavens are open and God is listening. Jesus' prayer at the cross was rejected so that our prayer will be received by God. At the cross, Jesus received the scorpion and the serpent so that you and I have the confidence God will not fail to give what is good for us. See, the gospel tells us that Jesus received the silence of heaven so that we could receive the answer of heaven. And there is no father who is more eager to give good gift to their children than the heavenly father. None. And let me close with this. If you read Acts chapter 12, it opens with tragic crisis. It opens with James' dad, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. But then the church pray. And Acts 12 close, Herod dead, Peter freed, and the gospel triumphing. And the word of God increase and multiply. Tell us something. The gospel movement is unstoppable. Yes, you will encounter opposition. Yes, you will encounter trouble. But God has given us the mean. Prayer. That is our tool of war. Because prayer gives us access to bring our petition to the sovereign king of the universe. And unlike Herod, our king is alive. And he's unstoppable. He will accomplish his will on earth 
as is in heaven when we pray to Him. So, pray and ask Him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful because we serve not just a wonderful, great, sovereign King, but You are also our Father. Yes, You are in absolute control over all things, and yet at the same time, You commanded us to to seek and knock and to look to You. And for the time again and again that we may think lightly of a wonderful privilege that we have in our hand, forgive us, God. For the time again and again, maybe we we have become numb of asking because we tried and it seems like it does not work. But remind us once again, Lord, that you are sovereign Father, that you know what is best for us, that you will not fail to give what is good for us. And if you do not give it to us, it's only mean that it is not good for us. And you guarantee that by giving your Son to die for us and at the cross. Today, we can always have the confidence that you are good even when life hurts. So help us to trust you. Help us to pray. Help us to bring our petition to you. And help us to do that with an expectant heart, knowing that you will not fail to give what is good for us. And we ask this in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.